Greetings from Longtime No See, the podcast. Every week, we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. The Lion Share Club in San Anselmo, California, on the night of October 26, 1970, had what Bill Hader's Stefan character on SNL would call everything. There were 200 hippies, hash brownies, an open bar. And all of it cost just around $1,600. That's nowhere near the budget Janice Joplin had set up. She'd put aside $2,500 to fund a gathering of her friends and family, her acquaintances and colleagues, as a show of appreciation for them and their support. And I'm sure she very easily could have talked everyone into partying more, into staying up later, into having more fun, into meeting that $2,500 cap. But she wasn't there. Janice had written a $2,500 party budget into her will. And this night at the lion's share was her funeral. And the party never achieves the level of hardiness that Janice wanted it to be because Janice was the life of every party. Her absence did not fail to make hearts grow fonder. Everybody missed her. But even as members of the dead and Quicksilver and Country Joe and the Fish and a whole slew of countercultural scenesters raised glasses and other stuff in tribute, she was very, very, very much missed. Janice had gotten the whole idea of a celebration like this at a funeral for a hell's angel, who, like her, also knew how to have a good time. She'd hoped that whenever it was that she'd gone, that she'd able to throw one last do for everyone. And she got her wish. Big Brother guitarist James Gurley said, Everybody got just as drunk and as fucked up as they could. In Ellis Amburn's 1992 book, Pearl, The Obsessions and Passions of Janis Joplin, Gurley continued, I think it was fitting to send her off that way. I made a toast. Here's to... What's her name? There was no talking about her at all. It was hard. It was difficult for people to talk about someone whose energy had just vanished and whose energy was so integral to the party that was California in the late 1960s. But since I wasn't around for all of that and Janice and I never got to hang out, 
I'm going to go ahead and talk about her if that's okay. In this episode of The Opus, we'll hear from people who knew Janice and people who made it their business to know about Janice. Family and fans. We'll look at the end of Janice's life and the beginning of a legend and what a pearl. An unfinished album that became one of the biggest sellers of the era. We'll get into the completion, its reception, and some other albums that did numbers, despite their creator's absence. Janis Joplin's last party invitation read, Drinks are on Pearl. The nickname that she'd given herself and that her band had decided to give the album. And I think any one of us would have RSVP'd yes to that, regardless of circumstance. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, this is the Opus. And I'm Jill Hopkins. Why don't you go ahead and pour yourself one? You know those paintings that people make of famous people after they die, where they're in impossible situations with other deceased famous people? I don't know about where you live, but sometimes you can buy them off the side of the Dan Ryan Expressway here in Chicago. It's always something like Kobe Bryant dunking over Babe Ruth while Malcolm X looks on from the coach's bench. Or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. playing pool with Rosa Parks and... Somehow also Barack Obama? I, I, I never really get those. That one in particular. But I, I have a commission idea, if someone's willing. One of those paintings, but it's, it's for a music festival. Like a Coachella poster with all the artists listed. And then underneath, instead of the mountains and the palm trees that they have, it's, it's everyone who's playing. It's Jeff Buckley... Biggie Smalls and Tupac, there's Amy Winehouse and George Harrison, Mac Miller, and Pop Smoke, Triple X Detention, and Easy E. And I know it sounds like a really disjointed festival because it definitely would be one. And I already kind of know when I would go to the bathroom during all of it. But this absurd art project would bring together a group of artists who've all released successful albums after they've died. And the headliners of this fest, the big font names, are Janis Joplin and Otis Redding. Otis Redding was a rising star at Stax Records who was about to really break through when he died at the age of 26 in December of 1967. His producer and co-writer at the label, Steve Cropper, was on the road with Booker T and the MGs when he found out about Redding's plane crash. He'd returned to the studio and mixed Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, the song they'd been working on together, and completed it before the rescue crews at the scene had even found him. The song was released on January 8, 1968, 
and it became Redding's sole Hot 100 chart topper. And surprisingly, his only R&B number one. This was just two years before Pearl would have a similar distinction. Here's music journalist Steve Huey. I mean, she, in, in, in a certain sense, her death came at a similar point as Otis Redding's because she was just starting to come into her own as an artist and get wider exposure. And, I mean, Otis Redding was a little more established with R&B audiences, certainly, than Janis Joplin was with rock audiences. But she, after Otis Redding, she became the second artist ever to have a posthumous number one single. I mean, partly, I think partly because of all the publicity surrounding her death and how you know, untimely it was and how tragic it was that this great artist was not going to get a chance to continue to develop and progress and just make more amazing work for, for people to enjoy and connect with. Janice had died so soon after Jimi Hendrix, too. At the same age, and also from a life lived to excess. Here's Holly George Warren a biographer of Janice's. I guess the only thing that gave them a feeling of hope was the fact that uh, this wonderful artist had left behind these recordings that by all accounts were going so well. So um, so I think people just kind of craved this music. I mean, it's the same way that we've, you know, when we've lost other important artists, you know, suddenly like Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain, um, you know, we crave to still have them in our lives because their music means so much to us. So I, I think that was something that um, people were just hoping it was going to be really great. The months between the time when Janice died in October of 1970 and Pearl's release in January of 1971 gave the album's team precious little time and a hodgepodge of material recorded to meet her fans' grief-fueled anticipation. Here's Holly George Warren. Now, there was a lot of production work that had to go on. And again, thank goodness Paul Rothschild was such an amazing pro because uh, they'd only been recording the record, you know, pretty much they started uh, earlier in September. And I believe the last track, which was uh, Mercedes Benz, was around October 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, so a lot of the stuff was just. Um, still in the works, you know, like scratch vocals or, you know, coming out, coming up with um, the arrangements and things like that. So he had to work with, um, luckily they had saved all the different uh, takes and recordings. And so he had to work with a lot um, of different uh, flying parts to put together, you know, the album Pearl. And of course, um, you know, famously there was one song included that um, she never got to do vocals for, you know, Buried Alive in the Blues, which was written by her good buddy, uh, Nick Gravanitas, who she had, again, she'd met him back in 66 in Chicago, actually, when Big Brother had a little residency there at a folk club in Chicago for about three weeks. So, um, and she had done some of his songs with the Cosmic Blues Band and was a big uh, fan of his writing. So that was the one song that, she hadn't done any vocals for um, to try to make a record with 10 tracks on it. Um, 
Paul Rothschild realized that she had done this fun kind of off the cuff little ditty that she had literally (laughs) just written um, kind of, it was a takeoff on Michael McClure, who was part of the Beats, um, kind of a shanty that he was doing. And then she and Bobby Newworth, her buddy, one night, right before a show at the Capitol Theater in New York, um, they were at a bar hanging out with Geraldine Page and Rip Torn and started just kind of like goofing on with this song idea, which became Mercedes Benz. And she literally did it for the first time that night on stage with her band. And again, that just shows how the band and Janice Hett were so simpatico. She like throws this crazy like thing out at them and they just kind of kind of fell in a little bit so one night in the studio she had done that for Paul Rothschild as just kind of a whim and you know he remembered that so that became of course um, the 10th track that he was able to include so with Janice's vocals as done as they were going to be and a fantastic job by the Full Tilt Boogie Band and the production crew Pearl made its way to stores And I think that three-month cushion made it a bit easier for music writers to hear it with neutral ears. And some writers even gave themselves more time. Don Heckman from Stereo Review waited until August of 1971 to say, I found it almost impossible to review this last Janis Joplin recording with any degree of objectivity when it was first released. So... A few months later, here it is. Free, I hope, of most of the distracting emotions her death created in those who knew and loved her. The album became one of the best received of the era, and it's earned places on lists of the best rock albums on magazines like Rolling Stone and Spin, Mojo and NME, And Pearl got Janice her sole number one single with me and Bobby McGee. And it was the second posthumous chart-topping single ever, right after Otis Redding's. Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained and rode us all the way to New Orleans. Janice Joplin was 27 years old when she died. Her parents found out in the middle of the night and told the rest of their children, Michael and Laura. No, I was 18 when she passed. You know, I was 21 when she died. We didn't talk about addiction in the same way that we do now. We didn't have the tools or the resources or the language even to address the substance abuse that plagued Janice and so many other artists of her time. I mean, I felt so that my parents couldn't talk about it. I didn't know what was going on. And and by the time I was old enough to want to know, to me, the only way to do it was to try to write and to, uh, to 
have a reason to get people to talk to me. I wasn't talked about as addiction back then, you know, hmm. at, at that time. Uh, I was just talked about drug usage, and everybody, uh, I was caught up in it as well, and we were all, you know, I was really proud of the fact that I'd never gotten drunk. I'd only done a massive amounts of dope, you know. Like, yeah. <laughs> but that was like a dumb flag to wave, but, you know, it was the one I had. Uh, so it wasn't surprising to me at all, and it wouldn't have bothered me whatsoever. You know, the, since we weren't there, I don't know her actual usage. You know, I've heard and talked to other people since then, but, you know, I've learned a lot more. And the, the obvious signs were there. We didn't know. Nobody knew what the signs were back then, really. And, uh, you know, we're thankfully because of some of that behavior, we are now much more aware of people's uh, usage and people are confronted a lot more these days. You know, uh, they're not like just helped along the path and they are faced with people saying, no, cut your behavior out. And so that's because we've lost so many people, I think. And Janice is part of that, unfortunately. Uh, so I didn't think of it as a bad thing. I thought it was a badge of courage as well, you know, yeah. like, and it was part of the whole thing. I don't know if her life could have been any different, but, uh, you know, to be alive would be much better. Here we'll hear from Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Grace Potter. Grace is a huge Janis Joplin fan, and if you've ever heard any of her music, you can definitely tell the influence that Janice has had on her. It's easier for me to picture it as if it's still going because it's so many things happened. She had such a vibrant, you know, um, life while she was here and she made such an impact in such a short period of time. Um, but those darker periods um, where you know that things aren't quite right and you know that, you know, um, you see someone's health deteriorating or you see their choices getting more and more erratic. Um, I think that the creative community wasn't really support. It, it was harder then. it wasn't yeah. set up to support people with problems. Yeah. So the, what if for me plays out in, you know, taking action with addiction and finding those resources and, and, and exploring them, in an industry that has just seen so much of it now, yeah. we just can't allow it to continue, you yeah. know? Um, and so one of my really, my big missions in life is, is, you know, to focus on paying attention when people are crying out for help and, and really listening. And mental health is obviously a huge piece of that, but addiction and mental health go hand in hand, creativity and mental health go hand in hand, healing and music go hand in hand. So it's a, it's a big piece of it. So hopefully, you know, our lives won't have to be a bunch of what-ifs um, based on the, the musicians and people that we love. Embedded in Janice's legacy is the beginning of a larger conversation about addiction in the arts and entertainment industry. 
While her friends and family and the people who loved her didn't always know how to help her or even that she needed help, we do now. Perhaps it's difficult to see a person's problems that are right in front of you when that person's talent and humor and sweetness and humanity looms so large. Before we go, I think now is probably a good time to say that if you're in the United States and you're in need of a free, confidential, 24-7, 365-day-a-year treatment referral and information service in English or in Spanish for yourself or for someone you know, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration has a national helpline at one 800 662 help that's 1-800-662-4357. The addiction, the untimely young death of Janis Joplin, is not the whole of her story. And it doesn't have to be anyone's. There's so much talent in the world. And I, I don't like to see it snuffed out like this I don't like what ifs on the next episode of the opus we're going to hear more from Grace Potter and the Joplin siblings and Steve Huey and Holly George Warren about Janis Joplin as a feminist icon she didn't see herself as one she never called herself one but others saw that her life of independence and overt sexuality and unwillingness to bend to tradition made her one. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time. Won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me. And buy the next round. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the Consequence Podcast Network. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks, and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating. 
frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts.